This is Melissa Stewart, welcoming you to an episode of Beyond Brave Podcast. Beyond Brave is a chance for us to learn from each other. It's also a time to be courageous by sharing ideas, especially those ideas that are initially less than perfect in the classroom. Lastly, it's a chance to be brave together by boldly embracing the culture of pedagogical inquiry. and she's our guest. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Why don't you start by just giving us a little information about you? What are you teaching now? I teach sixth grade math. We have two levels of math, so I teach regular sixth grade math and then honors uh, math six. And I also teach one discovery class in the afternoon. Great. And discovery is our self-contained classroom for students who are receiving enrichment services based on criteria for gifted and talented learning, correct? Yes. Awesome. Okay. You're doing this really awesome thing in your classroom called the four quadrant strategy. Can you give us an overview of that? This is a strategy that allows for differentiation in the classroom and it allows it to flow seamlessly, especially in like a heterogeneous class. All content is delivered through four quadrants or four levels of complexity. Quadrant one is the learning quadrant where students will listen to a video or watch a video or they will partake in a whole class or small group lesson. They could, maybe it has some manipulatives in that. They're just gaining the information, gaining the knowledge. Quadrant two is where they move on from there. And that's the practice quadrant. And this is usually just your standard math worksheet where they're just practicing those skills. It could be online or a lot of the students actually prefer paper pencil in math. Then they move on to quadrant three, which is typically your performance-based assessment where students have to apply the information that they've learned in quadrants one and two. Finally, there's a fourth quadrant that not all students get to, but it's the extension of the skills. It can be a complex problem that requires students to use several skills in order to solve or an introduction to seventh grade content related to the topic. All students are required to complete quadrants one through three, and four is an extension for students who demonstrate deep understanding or have time to explore or enjoy that particular topic. So I've started using our online system of Alex to identify some students who have already mastered skills. And those students have the opportunity to skip quadrant two. And it's totally by choice for those students. If they feel comfortable with it, they can skip it and go right to three and four. But it's expected that they'll do three and four. And I did this because I found a lot of my gifted kids were not doing it just because it was more work. So it eliminates that whole more work problem that we have a lot of times with gifted kids. So they have the opportunity. And if they don't feel like they're strong enough in that skill, they can choose to do quadrant two just to get the extra practice and then maybe not do four. Or sometimes they do. It just depends on time usually for them. Some of the struggling kiddos that I have can be excluded from quadrant three occasionally just because Two might have taken a long time to get through, and they really need to have that solid foundation. So in class, the students work through quadrants while I work with specific groups of students, or I can walk around the room checking in with every student. I read Learn Like a Pirate last summer um, by Paul Solars, and I really liked his Give Me Five strategy. So if I'm working with a student, it's expected that we just can't be interrupted. And so if students have a question that maybe the rest of the group can or answer, they raise their hand and they say, give me five. And everyone, including myself, we stop for a second. They ask their question. 
And then someone can answer it. I've had students get really excited about something and they'll share an aha moment in the front of the room. It's been pretty cool. They even use it to dismiss us from class sometimes (laughs) if I lose track of time or to get class started. So they've used it for all different kinds of reasons. Well, everything that you talked about, there are so many things that you said that are really exciting to me. I just think about how it's built in automatically for those students who are able to acquire information quickly, the idea that they don't have to learn at the same pace as someone who's acquiring that same information in a slower manner. I'm going to try to limit myself because I could (laughs) talk to you about this for hours. How did you ever discover this strategy or find it or think about it or develop it? How did it even come to your mind? This strategy is a combination of several different events that took place in my teaching. And in a way, it is what I kind of always hoped and imagined my class could become when I first started teaching. But I didn't really have a framework for making it happen, just allowing students to access the content at levels that are appropriate for them and work at their own pace. And so I observed a teacher about five years ago who, in another district, who used a similar process to assess her student. So she broke her test into four sections that increased in complexity and allowed students to continually correct their test and work on it and turn it into her, and she would grade it, and then she'd give them the next portion of it. And I thought, well, why can't we deliver content the same way that she's assessing this content? And so I kind of thought of this idea. One of the sixth grade skills is learning the coordinate plane, and so the quadrants are set up as the quadrants Ah. of the coordinate plane, and they actually get to move their names in the quadrants, too, of where they are, which helps me also make groups for the next day. So if I look and I see a bunch of students are still in quadrant two, that might be the first group I'll say, okay, I need these kids and the groups are pre-made. So I don't have to sit down and do that. It's already done. And I just pull that group at that time. And I can like think back to a particular student that made me like change it in that way. Mm. So the year before I started this, I had a student who was in my co-taught class, and she struggled with math. But once she understood it, she kind of flew through. So she was definitely moving faster than the rest of the class. So I always struggled to find ways to differentiate work for her and to keep her going. And I'd give her something, and it wasn't really helping her to become a better math student. So I thought, what if there was a way that she could just keep moving and not have to wait on me and the rest of the class? It goes back to all kinds of things. Behavior management sometimes have helped me to kind of keep things moving. And there are so many things that you said. Okay, now (laughs) now I can't help myself. I got to jump in. When I reflect upon my time when I was a teacher, one of the mistakes that I made so much of my teaching career is I worked so much harder than the students, especially my first like five years that I taught. I would work hours and hours and hours developing lesson plans. I mean, it's amazing that I ever got married because I don't know how I ever dated because I was in my classroom most weekends, just constantly working on the perfect lesson plan. Now, granted, this will show you how old I am. This was before the era of computer. So that was all like I was handwriting everything that might have taken longer, but still definitely like to prepare for a lesson, I was putting in hours and hours. And so as a teacher, especially at the beginning of my career, I could only do so much well because there was only so many hours of the day. So I would maybe do part of a unit the way I wanted to. And the rest of it, I just had to kind of give in to because there just wasn't enough hours of the day. And when I hear you talk about having this system set up, I'm thinking, this is what all the experts are saying about there has to be equal work and ownership between the teacher and the students. Is that, do you think that's happening for you? I do. I Well, sometimes I think they're working harder because I have a unit guide 
and it's a Google Doc. I have this unit guide and it's set up and it's got all the quadrants for the whole unit, which I give the students and it's got the study guide that they'll need. And even in-class activities that we do whole group, because we don't do every single day quadrant work. Most days we do. But there are times where we have to bring the class together and really good hands-on activity that would work best just whole group and just get everyone Mm -hmm. together. But all of that's in the guide. And so the students get that right at the beginning. I print it out at the beginning, anything that they need, and I have drawers in my room. So they'll know, like, if I'm in the first set of quadrants, I need to grab from drawer one. If I'm in the second set of the unit, I need to grab Mm. from drawer two. And it just, it, I don't do hardly any work during the unit outside of the classroom. I even grade their work right in class, because if I'm sitting there with them before Mm -hmm. they move on, they get checked off by me. And so I talk about, oh, you made a mistake here. Let's talk about it. Let's do this. I'll maybe say, we'll try this problem too, and then I can sign you off. And if it's got my initials, they get full credit on the assignment. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get my initials, they turn it in and I grade it. And that's like five or six papers a night Mm -hmm. that I have to grade Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus a whole classroom set because I've checked it in class. Right. And so how many years have you been doing this? This is my fourth year. And so I'm wondering... When you first started to explain this, you talked about the idea of having resources like videos. I thought to myself, oh, that could feel overwhelming to people. I wonder if you just started with like one unit. And how did you initially start? Did you start the entire year doing this? I actually started it in a co-taught class, which was helpful. Mm-hmm. And I had I had a really fantastic intervention specialist who was all about trying new things. Yeah. And she was just like, okay, let's do it. Let's try it. And uh, And it was really working well for us because there were two of us in the room. We were both able to help students. We felt like we were able to get to every student instead of when you're standing in the front and you're teaching this great lesson, you still don't really know what everyone's doing. But I felt like I kind of started to know what everyone's doing. It was materials that I kind of was already going to use. I had Google folders where I had all the information. So I would pull it out and just say, well, this is like a level one activity. This is a level two, level three, level four. And it just kept evolving from there. I had already been using Flip Classroom. So I had a Mm -hmm. lot of the videos. But I still find that I go back and I'm like, "Eh, I didn't really like that video. So I remake them. But I don't have to remake them all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Starting really at the earliest, I just pulled resources I already had, and it was a lot of worksheets at first, just in different levels of complexity. Mm-hmm. And then I can make it better. Every year, I go back and I relook at the unit guides and what worked, what didn't work. I put some notes in it during the unit, so I remember um, when I go back and I make some changes every year. So it never looks the same. And you use this technique in both your sixth grade math classroom and your honors. Yes. And so your honors classroom are really students who are anywhere between a single and a double year acceleration. Yes. It's interesting. It's really interesting to think that this format works for all types of learners in your room. Yes. I actually have a student this year who has been doing a lot of the honors curriculum because I lined up both classes so that if I'm teaching integers to math six, I'm also working on the integers unit with my honors kids. They can access the the content at all levels, really, in the class at all times. So I have a student this year who's been really flying through right after winter break, really took off in math, and he's been working on a lot of the honors stuff. And I think he's going to be ready for algebra next year. So it's really cool to see yeah. he was able to do that. Can we just stop and talk about that for a moment? How exciting is that? Because here's where I'm a big believer, especially in middle school, where students are in such a 
fast ranges of maturity that the light bulb comes on for students at different times. And so that idea that a student is one type of student when they walk in your door, but three months down the road, they're a completely different student based on their own level of maturity. And so it's so exciting to hear that you have an easy way to provide that. So here's something else that you said that I just want to unpack for a minute. You mentioned that when there's a performance task, they can have opportunities to repeat that. So is that only for the performance tasks and or do you offer summative assessments as well? And when you do offer summative assessments, do they have a chance to retake those? Really, I tell students, I said, as far as quadrant work goes, you can get 100% because you can just keep correcting it and correcting it until you're happy with the grade that you get. Really, for the most part, when you get to the first two quadrants for sure, pretty much everyone gets 100% because they aren't able to move on until they get to the third one. Mm -hmm. And then some kids will lose a few points here or there because maybe they'll finish it at home and they don't want to come in and get it checked. They'll just turn it in. But they can go back and correct anything we do in class. Quizzes and tests and things like that, they are allowed to correct as well. I've offered retakes. We do little formative assessments at the ends of every one or two sets of quadrants. And if they don't like their grade or if they get a low score, depending on what they get, some have to do some relearning and then they can retest and then others can choose to retest if they just wanted to get the couple extra points back. I'm really intrigued and I've been thinking about this a lot. When I'm reading some of our researchers in the world who are helping to inform us about education, one of the topics that's being talked about is the heavy assessment culture that we're in right now as public school systems across the United States. And part of that is the idea of mandated tests from state governments is a one-time test. You take it and then that's going to determine your knowledge and how as educators we resist that. And we don't always find that is 100% evident of what the student's knowledge is. Yet, as educators, sometimes we practice that same philosophy. We do the very same thing in the classroom and say, this is your one and only time, student, to show me what you know on this big summative assessment. Those researchers are also challenging us by saying, name any other huge access point of a test that students are not allowed to take again. So your driver's license, if you're going to take the bar exam, how many times are you allowed to take it? How do you hear students talk about assessments knowing that they can redo them? They feel a lot more calm about it Mm -hmm. on one hand. On the other hand, some are like, well, if I didn't pass it, that's okay. I'll just do it again. So it kind of goes both ways. Mm -hmm. I like to do a lot of talking about growth mindset in class Mm -hmm. and things like that. And what I get more is when they don't do well and they're they're feeling really bad about themselves. And, And I always say in class, I don't care when you learn the material. I just care that you learn the material. And that's kind of helps them out. I had a student call me Miss Yet because I was oh. like, you haven't learned it yet. <laughs> so. That is the greatest compliment ever, I Miss know, Yet. Awesome. Yes, growth mindset and yet. I love that. That should be your sign outside your door. That is the best compliment. When I think about you as a teacher, this is what I know. Like you have very high expectations of yourself. You work hard. You care deeply for students. You care about your content. You're willing to learn more and more in order to meet your students' needs. But as teachers, I think all teachers want to do well by their students on a daily basis. And because of that, I think teachers put a lot of pressure on themselves to knock it out of the ballpark every single day that they come into the classroom. How did you ever find the courage to try something new 
knowing that the first time you did it, it wasn't going to be perfect. I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey for you, including a time that it was far from perfect and how you had the drive to continue to do it. I think I do pretty well with when things don't work out well. I, I'm pretty resilient in that way. I'm a rebel and I get bored when things aren't going the same. So I'd rather try something new and maybe it won't go well because for me, it just makes it more interesting to come to school every day. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind a little bit of failure, especially when I'm trying something new. I really like the process of going through and seeing what didn't work, what did work. If I have a co-teacher in the room, that's even better because then we can kind of bounce ideas back and forth off of each other. So I really just enjoy the process of it. But if things aren't going well in class, I I stop the class for a minute and I say, okay, guys, let's all come together. Let's talk about this. Let's maybe do this whole group for a little bit and then we'll go back to it. It's never a permanent thing, but sometimes groups are assigned and there's more structure for different certain groups. Sometimes I just have to take certain kids and pull them aside and work with them individually. It's just a lot of trial and error. Frustrating, though, when it doesn't work because, you know, you do want it to be great and Mm -hmm. you, you can see the groups where it really works with. There's the metacognition that's going on and they're thinking, do I know this well enough to move on? And you see how awesome it is. So I think I think about that and figure if I can get this group as close to that as possible, like it's worth it to keep going. I have a group this year that really is struggling with it. And I think part of it is content, that they have some gaps that we need to fill and just a, a mix of personalities that don't always mesh together. And so when that happens, I just pause. I go back to the old way because at least then we can get mm-hmm. everyone kind of calm and then we move on and we try it again. What is the biggest success that you've seen in the strategy on behalf of your students? Oh my gosh, this year, this is like my favorite year with one group in particular. It's one of my honors classes and they are often just trying to get the right answer. And that's, yes, like, yes. you know, mm-hmm. or they want to just check the boxes mm-hmm. like, oh, mm-hmm. I've done the work. And so with that group, because they're higher level self-motivated, I let them check their own work even on the quadrants. And so I post the keys wherever their name would be in the quadrants on the boards. And they go and check and I'll tell them, circle the five problems. Looks like they're going to challenge you and do those and see how you do. And so they'll do that. And at the beginning of the year, it was just, okay, I'm going to do the first five, which are probably the easiest ones on the page to try out. And then they found that they weren't really scoring as well as they wanted to on the quizzes. And then they had to go and do some relearning and then take it again. And Mm -hmm. so they were, they kind of got irritated with that and they've started choosing five problems like, like they were asked, but they actually believed me and they were like, oh, I'm going to pick the ones that actually challenge me. And then they'd check it. And if they got it wrong, they would actually go back and start trying other ones. So it wasn't like they were just checking the boxes or then they started asking, hey, I got this one wrong. They're asking their friends. They were asking me to really actually learn it because they knew that they were going to have to show that they know the skill in some way, which was really cool. And just to see them think about their own learning and do I have it? What do I need to do to really feel confident about it? I've seen so much growth in kids. We have one student this year and really struggled at the beginning of the year. And the last two unit tests that I've given, he's gotten like the highest scores in the class. And so it was super exciting just to see. Yeah, I have so many things to say. (laughs) One of them is just how much we have students who have learned how to play the game of school 
And I sometimes wonder, are they better at compliance or are they better at learning? Especially for our most gifted learners who it's hard to stretch them. I think they get very good at the game of school. I believe that you have read the book Future Driven by David Giernan. But in that book, he speaks specifically about what he calls success skills. And I love that title better than like 21st century skills. And if I paraphrase him, he really talks about that no longer are our students going to enter future careers where it's going to be alone about the skills that they know is what you do with those skills. And when I hear you talk about your quadrant work, what I hear is that they are practicing rigorous content, but it is equally important to practice those success skills of collaboration, cognitive flexibility, resiliency. And how important is that for our students as they move on? Let's pretend there are people out there who hear this and say, oh, this is interesting. I might want to give this a try. What is one of the biggest obstacles that you faced and how did you overcome it? Every year, it's the same thing. The first month or so of school, I'm ready to just throw it out. Like, this is never going to, they're never going to get it. I think I get spoiled by May when they're so good at the system. Mm -hmm. And then I get a new group that comes in and I expect it to be, and it's not. And so... The biggest obstacle is getting them to understand the procedures. And once they've got it and they've kind of internalized it and accepted it and really, truly help each other, start to communicate with each other and just listen to the conversations that they have and how they help each other out. Because a lot of times you can only work with someone who's in the quadrant that you're working on. And so if they want to work with their friends, they want to help their friends understand it because they know that they can't just do it. They have mm-hmm. to really understand it. But it's it's really just being really, really intentional mm-hmm. <laughs> about how you introduce it to the class and how they know where to get everything they need, how to access the videos or the manipul- where are the manipulatives in the room or where do I get handouts that I need for this particular work or where do I put my name and why do I put it there just as a help for me and for them and they can find other people that are working on the same thing that they can go work with. It's really, that's the hardest part. Uh, I think it's a really nice alignment is in grades K through five at our school district, the teachers are using two different programs. They're using a program called social thinking and another program called responsive classroom. And both of them truly believe in the power of intentionally teaching skills and removing the idea that students come in and they know what to do. So one of my favorite stories about this is when I first became familiar with Responsive Classroom, we were having a conversation with a staff about, do we really need to teach students the appropriate behavior on the playground? Don't you think by the time that they're in fifth grade, they absolutely know what to do? And so as I was thinking about that and generating some work around that at home, my husband glanced over my shoulder and I was writing some specific lesson plans for teaching behaviors for the playground. And one of them was about how to exit the swings. And my husband looked over my shoulder and he said, "Uh, what do you mean they can't jump off the swing at the end? That's the best part of the entire swing experience. You're a big bah humbug. And I thought, here is a man who's completely grown, who is saying to me, this should be a rule in the playground. And so that idea of explicitly teaching what we expect from students, no matter what their age is so important. And so I am guessing at the beginning of the school year, you spend significant amount of time just saying 
content is second, and teaching the expectations of the culture in my classroom is number one. The longer I teach, the more I realize the importance of it, too. I think if you would have asked me the same question five years ago, I wouldn't have given you the same answer. I was to try to teach the procedures while teaching the content, and it was crazy. But I also find math is really hard for some kids. By sixth grade, they come in with just really bad attitudes about themselves as mathematicians and about the subject in general. And so I have actually found that not starting with the content right away, teaching them the procedures, trying some fun activities that kind of help teach the procedures but aren't heavy on content really makes them excited to come to math every day. And if you can get them to be excited to come to class every day, that's half the battle because they'll They'll start learning the Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes it's about going slow at first so you can move fast later. Yep. Right? <laughs> what you said reminds me of something. I'm reading this book right now. It's called Bold Moves for Schools, How We Create Remarkable Learning Environments. It's by Heidi Hayes Jacobs and Marie Hubley Alcock. And it talks about three different types of pedagogies that we offer in the classroom antiquated, classical, and contemporary. And what I hear you saying is that in your classroom, there's really room for both classical and contemporary, that when you feel like it's necessary, you break away from your contemporary method of the four corners or four quadrants, and then you move to classical. It's just a nice reinforcement. I know you, Amanda, you will get this book and have it read by the end of summer. Okay, so here's another question. When I walk by your classroom, and I have the privilege of walking by your classroom often and seeing it in action, It sometimes looks very different from the classrooms that I was in when I was a child in math. Maybe if I had been in your classroom, I might have saw myself as a mathematician. I did not when I was in in junior high. Have you ever had a parent who has questioned what is happening in their own child's progress in math just because it looks different than a classic pedagogical classroom? And how did you handle that? Yeah, it it happens every year. There'll be a couple students who, until they get the system, it's they get frustrated too. And that's another th- hurdle, I guess, that I have to always try to get over at the beginning of every year with the students because some love it. They love that they can just work at their own pace. They don't have to worry about whole class, whole group, Um, instruction where they have to maybe getting the wrong answer. It's in front of me or in front of a small group of friends who probably are on the same page as them anyway. And so they, there's a lot less stress, but at the beginning of the year, it is different. And like some will go home and say, this math class is so different and cool. And parents will say, Oh, they're loving math this year. And then other parents, um, and a lot of times it's my higher students who want me to just stand in front and teach them mm-hmm. because it's easier, mm-hmm. you know, they get, they, right. they want me to just give them the content and they can take it back. And that's where the real struggle is. And parents will get concerned about it. And I really just, I explain it to them the best I can. And usually they are pretty happy about the way that it is. I also make sure that at Meet the Teacher Night, that I explain the whole system to them too, mm-hmm. just to, you know, as, as many times or in as many ways that I can let the parents know how this works and how it benefits the kids, that makes it easier. Sometimes when we want to try new things in the classroom, it can be tough unless we have any resources. What are some resources that you have found to be valuable to you 
My partner is actually super awesome, Ken Dunlap. He's mm-hmm. really great too. And he's always making things and like shares them and we share with each other, but he makes really cool activities that, you know, I use some of his. I like Math Shell as far as getting some really good challenging problems mm-hmm. for the students. Desmos, mm-hmm. I've started using. I'm trying to think Gizmos are really great for that virtual manipulatives. Mm-hmm. I've just got the book. Yeah, I just started it. The new Joe Bowler book of Math Mindsets yep. for sixth grade. One of the biggest things that I really try to do with the quadrant system, and I think it helps a lot of students, is just to take away that anxiety. Because I see a lot of our gifted kids that come in and they're very anxious about, got to get it right. And knowing that about them and knowing that we deal with a lot of perfectionism in in the class and not just in my honors classes, I have gifted students in my math six class who are just as excited about getting everything right. And so I think that that has really helped me to kind of look at from their perspective and then design a way that in class they can take the time without having an audience to see that they're not getting it right away or go ahead without sitting there and being bored because I already know this and the rest of the class doesn't. And so now I'm just going to sit here and wait for them to catch up. Right. Okay. So some final questions for you. These are going to be rapid fire questions. Just say whatever comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. Favorite food? Steak. Family members? I have just an amazing husband. I love him to death. And two adorable little kids, Jake, who is eight, and Lainey, who is about to be six. And They are really the reason they ignite my passion for their quirky, and I just love the quirky kids, and they've just really made me excited about the kids I work with. (laughs) And if I remember right, your husband is in the armed services or was in the armed services? He is a reservist in the Air Force, and he also works as a civilian for the Air Force. (laughs) So we should say thanks for his service, because he also not only provides service to our country, but he does stuff for our school too. So we should say a double thanks. Tea or coffee? Tea. Favorite hobby at home? Making things and running. And running. And you've actually done some significant runs, correct? I've done a marathon. Wow. I've done half marathons. I've done a 200-mile relay in the fall that I do with Sandy Gemmel, who is one of our intervention specialists. And her and her husband set it up. It's a lot of fun. It's like 36 hours. (laughs) Wow. Um, Last movie you watched? Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm kind of obsessed with the Marvel Universe right now. Uh, Recommendation of a book, a website, a podcast, an article, anything in pedagogy. Okay. Well, I really loved Last Summer Learn Like a Pirate, Mm -hmm. Mathematical Mindsets by Joe Bowler, um, Empower and Launch, Just Read Educated by Design. That one's a lot of Mm -hmm. fun. And Cult of Pedagogy. And I really love Radiolab, too. What do you hope your students say about you? I just hope they they had fun. I really hope that they feel like they were loved in class and they feel like they learned a lot about math and they can feel confident going on to whatever class they go on to next and feel like they're mathematicians. (laughs) What do you hope your colleagues say about you? But I hope they think I'm innovative. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Willing to try things. What does it mean to you to be a brave? Being innovative and leading the way and using your powers for good to just make the world a better place. If you could look back in time, give a word of wisdom to the brand new teacher named Amanda Sopko, what would be a piece of advice you would give that, Amanda? I think I'd say keep going because you're going to you're gonna get to where you want to be mm-hmm. <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, just keep trying new things because you're going to find something that you love to do. 
Well, as we end this, let me just say thank you so much for coming. As your colleague, if I was to describe you, Amanda Sopko, I would say that you're just a champion of students, that you're willing to reinvent what happens in your classroom, though at times that might be scary and it might be a little bit more work for you. You're willing to do it because you believe in that's what they need. And I heard you say, and I witness it myself on a regular basis, that you're also a champion of students. You believe every single one of your students is a mathematician and that you want them to believe that in themselves. And that's exactly who we need teaching in the United States right now. So I just feel so lucky that I get to work with you and I get to walk by your classroom on a daily basis. It's such a treat for me. You're a very open door teacher. So your door is always open and I really do get to see it on a daily basis. And we're, we're so lucky to have you in education. Thanks. So thank you for all that you do. Yeah, I feel lucky to be a teacher every day. 